you didn't have that new year's number one new year's resolution in your uh, Girl, covid resolutions speaking of i i refuse to put weight loss as a goal in my life it doesn't bring health and and good relationship good relations to my body into the world so i don't do that wait are you saying that you refuse to ascribe to the notion that your body is an, an apology my body is not an apology bitch your body is not an apology and this week we are diving into this book and all of its glory uh yeah we got into our basic bitchness this week and decided to have a book club but a book that we're i'm really excited to talk about so yeah let's get into it this is beyond curious with maya and kara a podcast about two friends taking chances to nurture connection. This is something I know about you, but would you rather be forced to read one book in three months or listen to five books on audiobook in one month? I feel like I've been getting through the audiobooks, man. But the, my truth is, is that 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 one one book that is like 75% read will stay there into the new year. And until it's read, it'll just transfer into the new year and I will read it, but it, it's gonna take some time. What's messed up is that I enjoy reading, but I keep carrying every place I go, I bring the same book over and over again. And I brought, I always bring two for whatever reason. And I thought in, in my new spot that I'm in, I thought, you know, it would probably be better if I just brought this one book and maybe read it. The one thing is that uh, I was such a big hater of, of audiobooks, I gotta say. Big hater. I was like, is it really reading? I have a strong opinion about that. I think it not being considered reading is ableist because I realized that having, having ADHD that definitely contributes to my ability to sit down and physically read a book and feel focused. If I can listen to it on an audiobook, I'm consuming so much more because I can, the way that I can process information is much, it's just more conducive. And then not even to think that there are so many folks that also can't, Braille's an option, but like so many people can't read. I love picking up a book. I really do. I love the notion of touching it and feeling it and turning the pages. I do. And I love a bookshelf. I love a good bookshelf. And yet, audiobooks makes it happen. We've been asked to read this book many times, and it really spoke to both of us and that we needed to have a conversation about it in real time about our feelings and our emotions and what we process during, during it. We decided to book club this week and read Your Body Is Not an Apology by Sonia Renee Taylor. And I am really excited to talk about it today. And what she talks about, what she discusses is bodies in general and the health of what could a healthy world look like if we believed in radical self-love, radical compassion, and within the context of all different bodies, all different ideologies, all different lives. So it was a really inclusive book that I was really excited about. We'll get into it, but Oprah did come up during my exploration in this book and 
what other content I started watching and started seeking out because of her. So I'm really excited to talk about that today. So I will tell you my quick little anecdote. Because the book, she talked so inclusively about all bodies. An Oprah episode popped up on my Apple TV girl. What she doesn't have locked down is the the partnership that she made with, with Apple. So she started doing interviews and one of them was with Elliot Page. And so I, I wanted to dive in a little bit more and learn more about his journey. So Elliot Page is a, a trans actor mm-hmm. who, who like came out essentially during the pandemic. It was a really beautiful conversation because I felt like I was watching how nervous he was during the interview and I could tell how seriously he took his role. And he talked about it too, like the privilege that he has. He really took every ounce of that into consideration and really cared about the things that he was saying and how he was communicating and making sure that he was doing right by the entire trans community, knowing, even starting out knowing that like he is only his own story, right? He has one, he's one part of the community and there are so many stories. And he said that, and he really... I really respected and wanted to like hold his hand during it because I could feel the, the, the nervousness in his voice. It was a really beautiful interview and I highly recommend if you have Apple TV. Anyway, that was my, I I started consuming all kinds of content that was based in open dialogue and compassionate communication because of this book. And so I, I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed this read. What, how did you feel? Um, so the book itself, I thought it was so, I found it to be so thoughtful, so intentional, so carefully constructed in that Sonia Renee Taylor, it is clear that while writing it, that she wanted to do right by all bodies and really do her best to bring forth all the ways intersectionality comes up in identities, all the ways that we celebrate, ignore, harm our bodies. I enjoyed it. It was an experience. How did you get introduced to the book? There was this conference in which she was headlining. And my friend Monet, she had texted me and she was like, listen, you have to get onto this conference. It was a, like a, healing day for black women and it was like a day filled with like different speakers and whatnot and Sonia Renee Taylor was the person who was actually headlining it and Monet had told me about this book in the past and it's just one of those books like you said earlier it's one of the books that just continued to come up I heard it from a few different ways I really love Brene Brown and she had her on her podcast and I remember a distinct story that she told on Brene Brown's podcast that stuck with me, how she came up with line, your body is not an apology. And it was so profound that I, I knew at some point I would be venturing into that book space, but then a friend and I connected and she urged me to read it and suggested not just that I read it, but then us as a group have a conversation about it. So it was very much similar to like a book club type of concept, but I think it reoriented for me because it felt deeper than like a book club talking about like a beach read. You know, this is this is about healing and how how valuable the conversation could be, how powerful the conversation could be talking about it with another person. Um talking about it with a group of women all having different experiences, all coming from 
different perspectives, um, all having different bodies. What, what does it look like um, to have that conversation together? And I was like, gosh, this is, this would be more powerful. And I, and so I started reading it then to prepare for that conversation. And I realized we really needed to have the conversation too. It's such an incredible book. I know there are so many themes. I think what I realized is so much of the book discusses topics that we have talked about and discusses the things that we value highly. So uh, yeah, we're going to just talk about a couple themes that we really liked and we would love as listeners, uh, if you have conversations, comments to talk about this amongst yourselves or to share it with us, please reach out to us on our Instagram at beyond curious pod or your email us. We I would love to continue the conversation and hear what, what your thoughts are on the book too. And, and I encourage you to read it as well. So yeah, Maya, what was one of the themes or one of the, the conversations that she brought up that you felt like, oh, this was for me. She's speaking to me. So one thing about this book is it's so rich in content, right? It's definitely one of those books where there are some books that really hone into one thing or, or one topic and just like get into the nuance of that one topic. Or there are just a lot of topics that are talked about in like this really rudimentary way. And I really do feel like this is a book where you continue to go back to, like a book that you highlight, you reflect on, um, and that you even source. What's cool about her and the way that she chose to to write this book is that she she chose to stop along the way and literally ask tough questions. She asked the readers to stop and have a reflection on what she was saying, to have a conversation themselves or to have a conversation within a book within a book club um, setting. There is a part of the book that feels overwhelming that comes with the amount of learning and unknowing and she talks about this nature of meta shame that we can have the tendency of having when we read the book this idea of having shame because we have shame right and she even takes moments within the book to be like now i need you to take a deep breath and to move with compassion. And that to me just speaks to how mindful of the reader in this entire experience. The Body is Not an Apology offers radical self-love as the bomb to heal wounds inflicted by violent systems. I got into this book specifically about my own feelings around sizeism and trying to heal myself of, of that pain of being a plus size woman in the world. She creates a through line with all the different ways that we are told we should exist in the world and what is the quote-unquote normal body or default body there's no such thing as normal the default body um, and how violence is perpetrated against that idea which is ever-changing so it's a really interesting radical text of talking about here are the examples how how it's done how can we change these systems and how can we do it from internally out into our society from internally to externally you talked about shame and you were talking about meta shame. And I, I would love to hear when you're, when you're thinking about that, what were you, what was coming up for you when you were thinking about her talking about meta shame? Cause it could come in any of the, these different contexts, any of these intersections. This is a quote from the book um, when she talks about um, the body as a transformative force and why centering the body is so powerful as we think about changing the world 
and in creating a better world. She says, if ever there were a place where the practice of radical love could be a transformative force, the body ought to be that location. When we speak of the ills of the world, violence, poverty, injustice, we are not speaking conceptually. We are talking about things that happened to bodies. When we say millions around the world are impacted by the global epidemic of famine, what we are saying is that millions of humans are experiencing the physical deterioration of muscle and other tissue due to the lack of nutrients in their bodies. Injustice is an opaque word until we are willing to discuss its material reality. As for example, the three years 16-year-old Khalif Browder spent beaten and locked in solitary confinement in Rikers Island prison without ever being charged with a single crime. His suicide and his mother's heart attack two years later are not abstractions. They're the outcomes and justice enacted on two bodies, racism, sexism, ableism, homophobia, transphobia, and fatphobia are algorithms created by humans struggle to make peace with the body. A radical self-love world is a world free from the systems of oppression that make it difficult and sometimes deadly to live in our bodies. A radical self-love world is a world that works for everybody. I think the self-love versus self-acceptance was probably one of the, the thoughts that really stuck with me. There's so much. But this idea that self-acceptance and self-love are very different. And there are two terms in which get conflated in the self-love, you know, body positivity community. She says this quote, so we have accepted lackluster jobs because we were broke. We've accepted lousy partners when their lousy presence was better than the hollowness of their absence. In practice, self-acceptance. We have grown tired of self-hatred, but can't conceive anything beyond the poetry of tolerance of ourselves. What a thin coat to wear on this weathered road. Activist and professor Angela Davis said, I am no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I am changing the things I cannot accept. We can change the circumstances that we have had to settle for self-acceptance. I assure you, there is a richer, cozier blanket to carry through the world. There is a realm infinitely more mind-blowing. It's called radical self-love. This is really the point here. Concepts like self-acceptance and body neutrality are not without value. And you spent your entire life at war with your body. These models offer a truce, but you can have more than a ceasefire. You can have radical self-love because you are already radical self-love. When I'm thinking about that quote, one of the stories that she told, she talked a lot in the first chapter about how she was told to be quiet as a, as a kid. And I remember reading the first chapter, listening to the first chapter while I was driving and starting to cry because there were these moments that I could totally relate to her and connect to her. Um, I was told that so much as a kid and to the point now that like being shushed is still like very triggering to me. One of the posed questions, I believe from the first chapter was, what's your first memory of feeling sh shamed for being yourself or feeling like you needed to shrink yourself? Her identifying that moment, it was so um, therapeutic and it was like a balm to me to feel another person connect with the thing that I had experienced as a little kid that we do, you know, that happens every day in school, right? It happens every day 
on the playground or with friends, right? There was something there for me when she opens up and talks about her own her own experiences. It truly was a workbook that you could dive in with like really hard questions. I don't even think one can do it all in in one sitting of the book. And there were countless stories too. Yeah. So for me, I feel like when, when she's talking about self-acceptance versus self-love, it's like I was accepting and have been accepting that I'm a louder person and that I need to monitor that in spaces. And instead of saying like, oh, I fucking love this about myself. This is who I am. And I want to celebrate and share that with others because there are other people like me or because people value that because I value that in myself. I value that I bring that type of energy. I bring big and bold energy into, into spaces. And, and that, that's still something I'm, I'm, I'm dissecting and will continue to dissect because, yeah, this is an ongoing effort to move from acceptance to, to self-love. One thing that she talks about is like this notion of a default body. Who is that default body and she breaks it down that it really is only five percent of American women I'm presuming that she's the study was for American women in 2018 it's a model who's 5'11 and 117 pounds who's white with blonde hair you know cisgendered white woman I think for me there was a specific moment in which she talks about like where hair comes in. And there were so many instances where she was talking about the body as an offense and what that looks like. And growing up, I think that my relationship with, with hair was immediately about my body being as an offense. Because I remember like, Pigtails, my mom always had me in like these pigtails with bobos. And there, of course, it was just a time in which all my friends were getting perms in their hair and they were straightening their hair. And I was just like, mom, I have to get this done. I have to get it, like, please, please. And my mom, I will say she gave a fight. She gave a fight until she was just like, all right. And then she became my hairdresser. I remember, so I begged my mom, I begged my mom, got my hair straightened and all that. I remember, so I lived in this cul-de-sac and my best friends all lived around the cul-de-sac. Um, it was me, Maya, and Aaliyah, and Ashley. Ashley had the house where she, she kind of had like the, the cool house in which like her parents would kind of leave sometimes. I just remember this, this woman and she was just this beautiful, chocolate woman and she must I mean she must have been our age now and her hair was huge her hair was this big afro and she was so curvilacious and like fully herself she was a boss she was bad she was feminine and she knew it and I just remember thinking of her as a kid and I must have been like 11 or 12 years old and like wow even with all my perm terror I understood and what I now know and what was talked about so much in the book is like what it looks like for somebody to radiate such a confident self-love to radiate radical self-love in all her glory and I remember saying manifesting in that moment like 
I want to be her. And just the other day I was looking at her and it was me. Oh my gosh. Cause I don't oh really re remember what she God. looks like. I just died inside. That was beautiful to, to hear. Oh, I love that. I love that. She's asking regularly throughout the book to show up, to show up for yourself to show up for others and to show up for the intentions of where we want to be. And you can't do that without stepping into it, without getting into what is it? Brene Brown calls it getting into the arena. Black hair, kinky hair, the way that it shows up is not, it's just not safe. And I feel like this book reminded me that even a choice like that, um, and I think hair is definitely one of the ones that are commonly talked about is, you know, it's deeply, deeply personal. You're making a great point too, because I think one of the other uh, topics that she brings up, which I think is more relevant than ever, as relevant as it always has been for women particularly, or for folks that enjoy the beauty industry, anyone that's targeted in the beauty industry, that can mm -hmm. be, that can be femme presenting folks, that can be women, that can be a, a ton of people, but the beauty industry is incredible it is focused solely on exploiting the default body yeah she she absolutely addresses what what does capitalism look like when shame and perpetuating unrealistic things exist and what does it look like and this is i'm saying this is as a girl who loves to open or loves to watch youtube unboxing videos of skincare and makeup I am not at all uh, escaping this reality or pretend like I I'm nowhere near it because it's true. The amount of money spent in the beauty industry, is it more than any other industry? Is it more profitable or, or bigger than any other industry? I think it's up there. It's definitely up there. And it started out with just toxic shit. You put toxic shit on your face and yeah. that was what beauty was. I it's just fucking insane. I think at one point she she's even like listen i do love a good good lipstick because one thing about this book i have to be honest you get fucking tired it's a lot and coming out of my lipstick coming after my love for makeup and like you mm -hmm. said skincare and beauty products and the decisions i make and the motives behind it it's like am i defensive am i uncomfortable do i disagree Am I just a part of my conditioning and revolting? What, what's happening? So that will happen. And I think that is the point. That That is the point. This is where, like, I think bad feminist, like Roxane Gay's bad feminist comes into play all the time in my brain. It's because she's like, you know, I fucking love makeup. I love glitter so much. And I also recognize that I am being exploited. So this is something in my life that, I, when I was in high school, I was in college, I had a really awesome roommate that made me start questioning things about myself. And there was a challenge where we had to switch activities, switch um, uh, routines with somebody. And this, and my friend never put makeup on once and I wouldn't leave the house without makeup on. The amount of anxiety that I had to leave the house to go to class without makeup on was now looking back makes me really sad, but I did not feel like I was worthy or in my bare face was okay to leave the house. It took me months to break that. And I'm so thankful for my friend to push me through that experience and that process because I, I definitely have a different relationship with, with makeup. I completely rejected it for a long time because I, 
of the negative relationship I had with my own self and my own self-worth and, and, and makeup. I'm so thankful for, for these types of interventions at points. And maybe this book is yours. Yeah. I, I now have a relationship where I feel happy and, and can have fun in a, in the beauty industry without feeling all, it like it's all consuming, like it once did. Yeah. I love that because I mean, and that's her whole reminder, right? Is like, it's not to to continue to put us in this place of shame, right? But to really, these questions are to stop and question our motives and sort of where where they come from. She has to introduce the the rationale behind why this is so important. So what she does, and this is so common for so many books like this that are like trying to describe and understand social systems. When you, to, to explain a social system, you have to give examples. And the examples are heavy. They are, they are hurt. They can be triggering. They can be all the things. They can be, they can be enlightening. They can be completely demotivating, disempowering. I get that she has to do it because she's, she's introducing concepts to folks that maybe may have never thought about fat phobia, may have never thought about transphobia, may have never thought about anti-blackness. I get that she had to do it. It was really hard to not pull, to pull myself up after reading that chapter and to move forward. I definitely took a break after chapter two and stopped for a while with this book because I didn't have the, uh, the energy, the emotional energy to be able to get to that next step. Yeah. I also think that there were certain parts where like I personally i am not an expert by by any stretch of the imagination and i learned about communities not only did i learn about myself and the identities in which i hold and the intersectionalities within my identity but i was able to begin to scratch the surface of identities that i will never fully understand right and that's what she speaks to like in one of her tenets of like understanding and accepting the fact that you don't have to understand to be able to to build relationships, build community, and to respect people and honor their differences and their experiences. I, I think that was a really powerful point that you made, and she definitely focused on that at different places. You don't have to understand it to do the right thing. And if someone flags it to you, you can acknowledge that like, oh, I don't get it, but this is what you're saying, so let's move, like, let's go forth. Even with that, even the fact that like I learned about self, I learned about others and community, I will say I, I learned a lot. I will also say that there were times in this book that it did feel like racism 101. Okay. It did it did feel like how to be a great human being 101, right? And I think for other people who have been doing the work. This is because it's a book about many things, many identities and how we come together collectively and not a book that hones in into one aspect or one topic. It's going to touch the surface. And at times you could be left with some meta shame over here, some anger over here, and also this feeling of some repetitiveness. I definitely felt that way. I, I will say as she was introducing like, what is racism? I remember her asking, what's your first relationship with otherness based on this color of their skin? Like a, a basic ass 
racism one-on-one question. I totally agree. There were so many of those I, I, I can agree to, and not that I, I had also a lot to learn and I just still have a lot to learn, but I, I do feel like there were points where I was like, okay, well that one, I didn't feel like I was moving forward until I was moving forward. I also want to, if I'm being honest, since we're like taking a moment for some critiques, one of the points that I was truly wrestling with in one breath, she talks about how having identities seen and affirm is an essential aspect of the radical self-love journey. And, and specifically, she was re- referencing the decisions that uh, trans folks make in, in reference to their body, right? That, that was kind of how she introduced this thought of like, being seen and affirmed is a part of your radical self-love journey. And at the same time, I did feel like what wasn't said, the decisions that people make to fit in society or to be seen and affirmed also just in, in its entirety needs to be respected. So one thing that she didn't talk about is like how people who make decisions, cause I, I believe in, in plastic surgery. I believe that if it makes you happy, then you should you should do it, right? And if, if that feels like an investment, if, if that is aligned with your value, I do believe that that comes with radical self-love too. I think she talks about the allure of thin privilege and how it makes for easy shopping and better jobs and romantic opportunities and society promotes and rewards fitness and ridicules fat bodies. And if somebody were to make a decision to advance themselves in the society that we live in right now, in the world that exists right now, and use the tools, is that inherently not radical self-love for somebody to move in a way to be seen and affirmed? This is a conversation in which I was wrestling with. I mean, this is literally the conversation I have with my, I was actually having with a friend that I was recently visiting because in theory, I'm a hard yes to however, whatever makes you happy, makes you happy. And I also know that I am a child of second wave feminism. That's like, don't give a fuck about what other people think about your bodies. Your desire to work within the system is like all you have to, like, that's all bullshit. I get both of those ideologies. And I think you're right about, I think the hard thing is like, who are we to place ourselves within that other person and, 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 and interject our thoughts on their bodies? That's ultimately, I think what she's trying to say is like, our role is to show up in radical self-love and radical self-compassion for ourselves and for them, because of whatever is going on, whatever decision that we, we choose is ours to make. We should have that autonomy and should give that autonomy to someone else, you know? Here's another thing that kind of came up is like this notion of like, it blew my mind before and after pictures of weight loss journeys as inherently making the before body is is having a statement that says that the before body is undesirable to be unloved. This is one person's way in showing a transformation. The interesting invaluable conversation that she's having around all of these topics is that like it's true it's true what they what she said about body shame is contagious 
I have we not been around these conversations with other with other folks when they talk about how how insecure they feel in their bodies and we feel a knee-jerk reaction to share our own shit. I was just in awe of how beautiful the cover is. That in and of itself was so wonderful to see. And I'm really freaking grateful to her for making the choice of putting her body naked on her front cover because damn was she beautiful. It reminded me of like the things that I can, that I want to think about and how I want to live and how like I want to be a bright light of self-love and, and, and love for others and love for myself. To know that like we're working all the time trying to improve, but we don't know what the we can have these metrics, but what is that? That is, that's my, my takeaway from this book. It's like, oh, I want to know what that looks like. I want to know what an untethered woman looks like. An untethered me looks like. And then who are you without it too, right? Because I think she speaks to how blindness, you know, doesn't, doesn't exist, right? To, to say you don't see is to, to notice and acknowledge that my body is not of the default body, that my de- you've been taught that my body as it is, is both dangerous and undesirable. Not only have we been told that, but we also are telling ourselves that. And at the same time, it is to not notice how the parts of my identity very much make up who I am and my personality. So when we think about taking away all the isms, who are you, right? With the ways in which I love. It's in alignment with so many conversations we've had and will continue to have. I highly recommend it. And, and I want to continue this dialogue. I, I really do see a value of actually talking about this with a group of folks. Yes, I, I, I do think so. Yeah, we are definitely going to do a part two and bring folks in. Because yeah, this is a one that grows and glows with community. Her definition of radical self-love was community and connection, which is ultimately our identified values, one for this podcast, but also for each other and, and with each other. And I I do want to keep defining, she really brought up all the ways in which we could continue to grow and improve as individuals, but also together. Um, and I want to keep thinking about answering that question, what does community and connection look like in radical self-love? And if you have any ideas, if something comes to mind when you're reading this or when you're thinking about it now, that that's the challenge. Those are the types of challenges that I want to do um, for myself and with you as a listener um, and with you, Maya. Yeah. So I, I do want to hear um, your thoughts and feelings on this book and, and what it felt like. I, I will say, the feelings that I got from this book felt like it was the first time reading like Buddhist texts. It was a spiritual experience for me. And I, and I, um, I'm really thankful to have had my heart opened in this way and redirected. It's, it's like a meditation. One of the things that you mentioned is talking about your, like the, the mind being a part of the body, um, and how that showed up for you. And I would love if you talked a little bit about what came up for you, because I thought it was, it was so good. Well, I've, in spiritual spaces, right, we talk often, there's an Eckhart Tolle, always talk, we'll regularly talk about how the mind is, is separate from the body, and the mind is not us, 
right? And and there is a really interesting relationship that Sonia Renee, Renee Taylor brings back up is that really the mind is the body. The mind is part of the body. And I have a really hard time reckoning what like good actions, good thought, good deed, good um, goodness, being and living and, and loving outwardly and internally in the world, wanting to be a compassionate being in the world, how to do that knowing that my mind has its own needs, right? It has its own health journey that um, I often feel so connected to as the way in which to give good thought, good deed, good, good words, good action, right? That the mind is so much attached to who I am. And that, that was really hard to try to reckon with knowing that like spiritual element of it. And also the practicality element of what she's trying to, to demonstrate is that our, our minds and our bodies are, are inextricably linked. And I'm still, I'm still grappling with at what point is my consciousness, my beingness as a human in the world or as a being, what makes me, me, is it my mind and my body is my, is my mind and my body part of that oneness or that being, or is that not even it at all? And all of this is stuff that gets sliced and cut and defined and categorized in all these different ways. And that I'm doing that constantly trying to make sense of the world around me and is shaped by the world around me. How much of me is me? What I spent my energy on was what made me, me. And that is not what she's posing here. <laughs> and that's not what other activist thinkers has, have posed. As a lover of like personal development of like spiritual texts, like the power is now to think about Eckhart Tolle. There's this notion of your, your brain, your mind is a tool that either you're using or uses you, right? And that who you are is is beyond the clutter but what does that say to those who are dealing with their mental health right and dealing with mental health issues and what does that also say in like the world of of manifestation that says like you are what you believe you know your your thoughts turn into actions your actions turn into beliefs and where's the room for people whose mind shows up differently in space? Radical self-love also includes your mind um, that doesn't look like mm -hmm. a way that you have to overcome or lift it by its bootstraps, so to say, to yeah. move on to what you really want. It was, it, honestly, it's just so much, there's so much to unpack with this book. And, and I really encourage um, y'all to check out The Body Is Not An Apology. I also recommend, I went on her website and started really diving into different things and she, you can sign up for free. She will send out affirmations every day. So if that's something that feels right to you, if that feels like part of a journey that you could incorporate or would like to incorporate to kind of dip your toe into this ongoing conversation um, and practice with yourself and all of us seekers, and please reach out to us at Beyond Curious Pod. But before we go, I think it's time for that little segment. We call it Women Should Have. Ooh, you know what really spoke to me this week? I did my like old night routine after being all over the place for so long and that felt really good. Getting back to a routine that you once had can feel so good. And that was Women Should Have. 
All right. And on that note, please check us out. We'll see ya. Love y'all. Take care of yourselves.